Today's scripture is from Matthew 16, 21 through 25. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and to be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, Grace family. Several months ago, our students were playing a game online called Three-Year-Old Pictionary. And during this game, we went through a series of images that showed all of these various different sidewalk chalk pieces of art from children, and we had to guess what that image was depicting. And so just to show you an example of one of the images, we came across this picture during the game, and we had to guess, is this image that you are looking at, is it a three-horned goat, is it Grondark, Lizard King of the North, or is it a dancing gecko? I thought it'd be fun to do this, but why don't you take a moment to discuss today, whether in chat or amongst your family members at home, what do you think this image is depicting? And so why don't we take 10 seconds today to try to figure out what this image is? Now, I've got to tell you, my initial guess when I was looking at this image was that this was Grondark, Lizard King of the North, purely based on the heroic and epic name, right? But to answer, the, the answer to this question is actually C. It's a dancing gecko. And so if you notice this image, do you, did you notice the mid-jig on this dancing gecko? Now, if you were like some of our students who, when they saw this image and then they saw the answer, they actually argued, the ans argued against the answer, just remember this. You're arguing against a three-year-old. Think about that for a second. But also, are you saying that your opinion is more true than the artist that created that image? Well, this morning, we're in this passage in Matthew chapter 16, where we see Jesus tell the disciples how things are going to begin to unfold for his ministry here on earth. And in the midst of Jesus' conversation with the disciples, there's a misunderstanding or there's this misconception of who Jesus is. You see, within this passage this morning, Jesus talks about going to Jerusalem, and from there, the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes would become a source of suffering for Jesus, and as a result, Jesus would ultimately be killed but raised on the third day. And so at the hearing of this unfolding of events, Peter pulls Jesus aside, and like Matthew records, he tells Jesus this. Peter actually begins to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Now, context in this passage actually gives great amplification because in the section just prior to where we're reading in today, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus talks or asks an important question from his disciples. Check out Matthew 16, verse 13, really quick. Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? 
And after several of the disciples share that some claim that Jesus is John the Baptist, or they share that he is Elijah or Jeremiah, or, or one of the other prophets, Peter actually answers correctly when he tells Jesus in verse 16, well, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In other words, Peter was able to look beyond what others may have seen. He, he wasn't, Jesus wasn't John the Baptist. He wasn't Elijah or Jeremiah, but Jesus was the Christ or the anointed one. Now, I thought it would be appropriate for us to gain an understanding or even refresh our understanding of what the expectation of the Messiah meant to Israel, especially as we try to unpack the next part of this morning's passage. You see, when we talk about Jesus as the Christ, it wasn't like his last name was Christ, wherein his formal name would be Mr. Christ. But Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, which is transliterated or taken from the Hebrew word used throughout the Old Testament, which essentially means anointed one. And if we were to go back to the Old Testament, you would find that this definition of anointed one is attached, actually, interestingly enough, to others who aren't particularly the Messiah, Jesus Christ, in the New Testament. Let me explain. And so, for example, prophets like Elisha were considered anointed ones in 1 Kings chapter 19. Kings were considered or even hailed as anointed ones as well. I mean, King David was considered an anointed one of God in 1 Samuel 16. Solomon was anointed by the priest in 1 Kings chapter 1. But get this. Maybe when it comes to anointed ones, your mind may naturally gravitate, much about like mine, towards those who are considered, for all intents and purposes, upstanding individuals, right? Surely, David and Solomon were, were, were not upstanding people when we consider the ways that they fell short in their kingship, but perhaps we can reason that positionally or directionally in their hearts, they were eventually turned towards God. But the question becomes this, what about pagan kings? Would they be, ever be considered anointed ones? Or, or kings who not only refused to, to bow to the God of Israel, but also blatantly blasphemed and rejected God and all of his commands? Well, surprisingly enough, King Cyrus in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 45 was regarded as God's anointed one. But this is where our understanding of anointed one can really begin to develop. Isaiah 45.1 talks about King Cyrus and his evil actually being used by God so that God could communicate both to King Cyrus and to the world, as Isaiah 45.6 says, that people may know from the rising of the sun from, and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Why do I bring this up? Well, it's because in one sense, there was a general understanding of anointed one in the Old Testament where anointed ones were simply those who God would use to accomplish his purposes. But on the other hand, there was mention or, or allusion to a coming Messiah or an anointed one who would fit the bill very much like Jesus did. In the Psalms, there's talk about a coming Messiah who is described as someone whose dynasty would never fail. Who's, who, who would enjoy God's protecting favor. And Psalms also talks about a Messiah who the people were called to pray to God for on his behalf. And so in Matthew 16, when the disciples mention that there are those who say that Jesus is John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah, they were looking at these different individuals in history who carried out the will of God. However, 
Peter is spot on in his answer when he tells Jesus in verse 16, you are the Christ, you are the anointed one, the son of the living God. Jesus actually takes Peter's answer and he affirms it as correct when he says in verse 17, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, going back to our passage that, that we're focusing on this morning, Peter responds to Jesus. Again, if you remember, Jesus is talking about going into Jerusalem and how he's going to suffer, how he's going to die, and eventually be raised again from the dead. And Peter disagrees. He, he literally tells Jesus, never, Lord, this is never going to happen to you. Peter had this image of the Lord and anointed one that didn't quite match up once Jesus began to mention that he would suffer and die at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. And I'm not so sure that if I were following Christ at this time, if, if I would have answered any differently. I mean, if you ever looked up, if, if you've ever looked up to someone or ever found yourself a, a super fan of a team or a celebrity, um, isn't it hard to embrace the idea uh, or, or image of a person or group of people as they suffer? For example, if the head coach of the Los Angeles Lakers were to come out and say that in order for our team to win, that we need to lose, we need to lose badly, people would jump to correct or even detach themselves from that thought. Why? Well, because victory and loss just don't seem to mix together. And so in this instance that we see, as Jesus talks to Peter and the disciples about how he's going to suffer at the hands of all these persecutors, Peter is highly sympathetic. I mean, you, you can tell that he has some sort of affinity towards Jesus, but even in his sympathy, he finds himself in the wrong. And, and Peter is about to learn rather quickly from Jesus that the thoughts and will of God can move far beyond the comprehension of man. And we know this because of how Jesus responds to Peter in verse 23. Jesus responds to Peter's rebuke by saying, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus' response to Peter may sound harsh at the get-go, but, but if we were to understand the utter importance of the mission of the Messiah or the Son of the living God, we begin to understand the weight of the statement that Peter is actually making here. Because it, as we think about all of the different instances in the Old Testament that point to a Messiah, we understand that there is a Messiah who is prophesied about who, yes, would have all of the perks that we talked about in the book of Psalms, right? There would be a coming Messiah who would be a part of a dynasty that would never fail. He would enjoy God's protecting favor, and he would be a Messiah for Israel to pray to God for on his behalf. But we also know that the Messiah would also be the one who would have to come and have to suffer so that the sinful the sinful, the, the sinful people of this world could receive a righteousness that could only come from God. Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 11, summarizes this about God's coming anointed one, or Messiah. It says this, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, 
He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, this Messiah, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Isaiah 53 communicated to the people of God that there would be a Messiah who would be despised and rejected, stricken and smitten, pierced and crushed, all for the sake of our iniquities or sinfulness. And so when we hear Peter's words to Jesus in Matthew chapter 16, as he expresses and reveals that his opinion is that no Lord or no anointed one of God should ever be treated with such disrespect at the hands of these persecutors, let alone be killed as a result of it. What Peter is essentially saying is he's speaking against one of the greatest doctrines that all of humanity could ever know and understand. And, and this is where we get this, the, the, the title of this morning's message. Jesus is Lord over our opinions, even if those opinions are coming from a place of compassion, love, or genuineness. If our opinions stand against the will of God, we are still in the wrong, no matter how genuine we feel, and, and he is still right. And in Peter's case, the Messiah and Son of the living God had to come and die, but through his death, he would ultimately become the sacrifice for the sinfulness of humanity for all who would believe. And so as Peter rebukes Jesus and, 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 and Jesus responds back to him, this, this war, Peter's response to Jesus warrants a stern rebuke from Jesus towards Peter as Jesus acquaints Peter's statement with being very similar to the plan of Satan to thwart the will of God. Jesus says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter's conversation with Jesus brings us to an important point of remembrance as you and I seek to follow and disciple our lives after Christ. As much as we may have passion for following hard after Jesus, I wonder how we would answer the question that Jesus posed initially to his disciples at the beginning of chapter 16. Who do you say that the Son of Man is? Who do you say that the Son of Man is? Now, it may feel like we're coming down pretty hard on the disciples or Peter this morning, and this isn't coming from a place of superiority as if we would say anything better than what Peter would have said in that moment. But it bears importance to point out that the disciples didn't understand fully or completely who the Lord was. And specifically, Peter makes it very clear that his perception of Jesus would be tarnished if Jesus should ever be met with suffering. Not only that, but the disciples, actually, they make no mention in this passage of the final words of Jesus in Matthew 16, verse 21. That in the midst of Jesus' foretelling of his death and suffering, he also said that on the third day, he would be raised. I think we can make a logical assumption that the disciples, like the rest of the people of Jerusalem who saw Jesus entering into town on Palm Sunday, the disciples were picturing an image of their Lord that was probably more self-serving or of their own making than it was according to the scriptures. 
I love this quote from theologian and J.C. Ryle who said this regarding the disciples. They thought so much of the Messiah's crown that they lost sight of his cross. Perhaps in their minds they were so engrossed with the thought of a victorious king that the thought of a suffering and sacrificial king just didn't make any sense or even flew over their heads even when Jesus had mentioned that he'd be raising up from the dead three days later. Thankfully for us, Jesus doesn't just rebuke Peter, right? He doesn't just rebuke Peter and the disciples and say, hey, hey, figure it out. He doesn't say, get behind me, Satan, and figure it out while you're back there. But Jesus actually starts to unfold his rebuking of Peter in Matthew 16, verses 24 to 25. And he tries to direct Peter, this is what your attention should be towards as you think about following me. In verses 24 through 25, Jesus tells his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Essentially, what Jesus does when he rebukes Peter is that he reminds him, as, as well as the rest of the disciples present, that those who, who would choose to follow Jesus must understand that following Jesus cannot be done on their own personal terms. In other words, the, the cost of following Jesus is a call to deny yourself in order to cling and trust in the will of the Father, just like Jesus was doing in this passage. And so in this instance, the will of the Father was for the Son to be pierced and crushed for the iniquities of this world. And no opinion of man, no matter how genuine or how thoughtful or eloquent, could get in the, will, the way of the will of the Father. Church, well, when it comes to this instance that we see played out for us here in Matthew chapter 16, there, there are a couple of things that I'm reminded of as, as, we, as we seek to try to understand what this passage is communicating. For starters, it's passages that, that, like these that remind us that the way of life for the Christian, it isn't glamorous. It isn't highly coveted by those with a worldly vision of victoriousness. We see that in the perception of Christ talking about his upcoming suffering and how that was translated by the disciples here in this passage. And contemporarily, when we think about the attitude and mindset that Christ carried in being obedient even to death on the cross, if we are to follow Christ, we are reminded that the Christian life will be fraught with calamity and that there will indeed be times to consider that following the will of God could lead us to a place of suffering. And secondly, on that note, there, there is a real question for us to consider answering in response to our text this morning, and it's this. When the words of our Lord run in opposition to our perception of who we think he is or how he ought to be directing us in our lives, how do we respond? Do we respond much like Peter in this passage and deny Christ as if his words need to conform to our perspective of him? Does Jesus need to fit the image of Lord in our minds? Or do we receive the rebuke of our Lord as his word continues to unfold his will for us in our lives? Church, I pray that 
we may draw closer to the truth that when we're faced with questions like the one that Jesus posed when he asked the disciples, who do you say that the Son of Man is? That our response will be framed within the truth of who God has revealed himself to be in the word and not merely what we think and want him to be. I find myself grateful for passages like these in Matthew chapter 16, that even in the midst of embarrassing rebuke, we can rejoice that God had a plan and intention for his son that went beyond our own perceptions and beyond our own opinions. And also, I'm so grateful that our opinions don't sway Jesus from accomplishing the mission of God to ultimately go to the cross, to suffer and to die, and in doing so, pay for the penalty of our own sinfulness. Church, I pray that you will be able to answer in agreement with me this morning that Jesus Christ, our Lord, has died on the cross for our sins. And if you are swinging by this online gathering of church this morning and you do not have a relationship with God, I want you to know that that God loves you and sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross so that the sins that you commit throughout your life can be forgiven and you can have a relationship with the God who created the universe if you confess that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and make him Lord of your life. Church, I love you and pray that this message blesses you this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for messages like these in the book of Matthew that remind us that your will supersedes our own. And so, Lord, I pray that when we come face to face with um, your word, that, Lord, we would look to you as our Lord, that we would trust you, that we would follow you, that we would obey you. And so, Lord, we ask for your Holy Spirit's guidance and support in obeying you this week, especially as you unfold more of your will will for us in our lives through your word. We pray these things in your name. Amen.